0: The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture series is presented to a live audience and provides insight into leadership and war fighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us educate future military leaders and the public. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this presentation are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the Army Heritage and Education Center.
1: Thank you. I remember when we first started the Kleber series and we used to challenge the speakers to write a book that would be worth carrying from one prison camp to another. Little did I know where I would be one of these days. Uh, The hardest part of this book to write was the acknowledgments. Since I did so much of the research here at AHEC, I'm scared to death that I'm going to leave out somebody that I should be uh, thanking. Uh, Let me just say that not only am I fortunate to work in the place that houses such matchless collections as, as AHEC, but I'm also lucky to have the assistance of a lot of friends and supervisors who supported me every step of the way. Uh, one of them that I really want to mention, I'm glad you're here tonight, Dave, is Dave Keo because Dave is the one who first led me to the Almond Collection. As we're walking down the row, he says, I don't think you want to write on that guy. He's kind of controversial. That, that's what decided me right there. Uh, more recently, I'd like to thank the museum staff, especially uh, Jack Layhow, Greg Clark, Uh, Caleb Dissinger and Chad Reynolds for the fine exhibit that they put together out out in the lobby And if you didn't get a chance to look at that on your way in, please do on your way out also uh, Jennifer Laredo from our uh, our uh, copy center staff who who did yeoman's work reacting to many emergency Requirements for scans to get ready for this Uh, for the rest of the staff. I assure you you're there. I please uh want to ask you to start reading the book on page three oh four. Um the uh HSD staff, especially uh Shane Riley and uh Dr. Jessica Sheets and Dr. Con Crane have been enormously helpful. Um I can't uh go any further without thanking my family who have accompanied myself and Ned Allman on every single family and school outing in the last ten years. Um, I especially want to thank my daughter Elizabeth, who uh, made all the maps that you see in the book and some that you'll see tonight. Uh, my wife and my son Joe are here tonight, and they are here on the promise that after this lecture I will finally stop talking about Ned Almond. So in the spirit of the original Kleber reading series, I'd like to illuminate the life of Ned Almond through a series of short readings from the book, and I'll allow Almond to speak as much as possible. I can't cover all of his life, but whenever whatever I miss, maybe we can cover it in the Q&A. On June 25th, 1950, Lieutenant Colonel Ed Browning and Lieutenant Alexander Haig had the Sunday duty at General Headquarters Far East Command. Shortly after 10.30 a.m., a message came in from Seoul alerting GHQ that the North Korean People's Army had attacked in force across the 38th parallel, separating North Korea from South Korea. Ambassador John J. Muccio said the attack included large formations of infantry and aircraft and asserted that this is not a false alarm. Hague's and Rowney's recollections of the event differ slightly in the details, but both remembered trepidation in notifying the volcanic Almond. Almond then called MacArthur. MacArthur later noted in his memoirs that the receipt of such stunning news made him feel like he must be dreaming. But then came the crisp, cool voice of my fine chief of staff, General Ned Allman, MacArthur recalled. Any orders, General? What orders, indeed? When war came in 1950, Allman was 57 years old, four and a fraction years from mandatory retirement. He stood five foot eight eight inches tall with a slightly stooped posture despite his always correct military bearing. Allman's close-cropped gray hair was not unusual for men of his age, but but visitors often found his piercing blue eyes very distinctive with a hint of skepticism. He spoke with a soft Virginia drawl, somewhat high-pitched and urgent. Haig remembered that, quote, you had to prove yourself to him every day. So who was Ned Allman, and what do we know about him? Edward Mallory Allman belonged to that generation of senior army officers who came of age during World War I. Allman's early military life differed little from his contemporaries. Ambition and the drive to to excel made Allman and his peers stand out as young officers and destined them for future prominence. Allman initially gained fame as the commander of the African-American 92nd Infantry Division during World War II and then led 10th Corps in the Incheon Landing in Korea. Almond is not as well-known today as some of his contemporaries, and he has a poor reputation among military historians. What we think we know about Almond now is largely the result of one or two data points repeated over and over for the last several decades. He's noted for his can-do attitude, natural aggressiveness, demanding personality, and sometimes self-serving nature, qualities that earned him the the nickname Sikkim Ned, In a career spanning 35 years and three wars, Allman displayed personal courage in combat and strong leadership as a battalion, division, and corps commander. He also left a reputation for abrasiveness, ambition, impatience, racial prejudice, and insecurity. But in every position Allman held, he earned the respect of his superiors. General George C. Marshall noted Allman's skills as a trainer and gave him one of the most difficult commands in the Army. Allman's racist reputation overlooks his devotion to training his troops. His relationship with General Douglas MacArthur gained him advancement and notoriety, but MacArthur's trust was well placed. General Matthew B. Ridgway, a commander noted for his aggressiveness, respected and admired Allman's pugnacious qualities. Allman's interpersonal skills have spilled over into the joint arena. Many people have incorrectly inferred a hatred of the Marine Corps from his conflict with one particular Marine commander, but that myth has obscured his actual antipathy for the Air Force. This book examines Allman in the context of his time and finds that there is more to Allman than we think we know. Allman's reputation may now be seen somewhat differently in historical context, but he was and is undeniably controversial. On a warm September day in 1912, Edward M. Allman hopped off the train at Lexington Station after the short ride from his home in Culpeper, Virginia. Carrying the few personal possessions approved for new cadets, the young man walked across the campus of Washington and Lee University and onto the adjoining grounds of the Virginia Military Institute. After a long and tiring day of uniform and equipment issue and drills and barrages of verbal abuse from upper-class cadets. Allman and the other new rats finally moved into their barracks. The first of many orientation lectures took place in Jackson Memorial Hall with Thomas J. Stonewall Jackson's immortal words emblazoned on one wall. You may be whatever you resolve to be. I noticed a VMI graduate mouthing that with me. The phrase guided the rest of Allman's life and career. VMI with its strong Confederate and military influences shaped his outlook Allman graduated third in his class in 1915, but VMI cadets were not automatically commissioned. Allman took a teaching job in Alabama where he met and courted Margaret Crook from an old Montgomery family. After the United States entered World War I, however, the rapidly expanding Army also grew its officer corps. Allman received a direct commission in November 1916 and joined the first OCS class at Fort Leavenworth. After OCS, he reported to the 4th Division, first training at Fort Brown, Texas, and then Gettysburg. Ned and and Margaret married on August 4th, 1917, and then settled down in their first home, rented rooms in Gettysburg. He sailed for France in May 1918, and by July was in action commanding a machine gun company. Going into battle for the first time, he had much more to worry about than combat. Anxiety and insecurity would be expected on the eve of battle, but he calmed himself by focusing on his leadership tasks. He later recalled, quote, I was so concerned with the local problems of billeting the men for the night wherever we were, of getting them properly fed from the field kitchens with a hot meal, and the animals fed and the company to move out from wherever we were by daylight, that I had little else to think about or to concern me, except in the immediate requirements of the command of a machine gun company trying to get into the battle area. This habit of checking the troops and eyeing every detail never left him. The temporary exhibit outside holds one of the contemporary reports from Ullman, if you take a look at that. From his first combat action, Ullman displayed great physical courage and placed himself at the front with the troops. On the evening of August 4, 1918, Ullman seated himself in an observation post on the front slope of a hill overlooking the Vessel River. He sent his draft animals and carts to the rear and positioned his machine guns so that he could provide overhead fire across the stream. Just as Alman sat down to eat, a shell exploded nearby and a fragment struck him in the head. He later remembered, quote, I had just opened a can of corn willie when a shell broke into our midst from across the stream, and although I had my helmet on, it penetrated my helmet and the top of my head. My orderly, who had brought me my supper, was killed by another fragment, And a number of men in my vicinity were wounded also and a couple killed. Allman's small but potentially deadly wound and his performance under fire earned him respect and a commendation for valor in which it was noted that he refused to be evacuated until he had taken care of his men. His, quote, his coolness, courage, and utter disregard of personal welfare were a great inspiration to his men, end quote. After recuperating from the wound, Allman assumed command of the 12th Machine Gun Battalion and commanded it throughout the remainder of the war and the occupation the following year. Combat taught him some enduring lessons about about the value of training. He had also begun to exhibit some of the professional traits that became the hallmarks of his career, aggressiveness, personal courage, and commitment to his mission. Like most officers of his generation, Allman spent most of the years after World War I in school, either as a student or as a teacher. After a year on occupation duty, Allman returned to the United States and was again posted to Alabama. His family grew as the Allmans Allmans welcomed Margaret Mallory Allman, known as Peggy, in 1920, and Edward Mallory Allman, Jr., in 1921. After he completed the company officer's course at the infantry school at Fort Benning, he remained as an instructor. This photo, by the way, is a picture of the Allman family in the Philippines uh, while he was commanding battalion. He also made an important connection at Fort Benning. Lieutenant Colonel George C. Marshall served as the assistant commandant of the infantry school during Allman's years, and Allman caught his eye. During that period, Marshall noted the officers who demonstrated special skills and abilities. Though they did not know it at the time, those officers became martial men, destined for high rank and position. Allman served with several future general officers at Fort Benning, including his fellow tactics instructors, Major Joe Collins and Major Omar Bradley. Working with these men gave Allman exposure to their skills, and they surely learned things from him. Marshall noted Allman's abilities as an instructor, and Allman owed some of his later success to the impression he made on the future Army Chief of Staff Marshall and Allman had never met before, but Marshall had many occasions to observe Allman both in the classroom and in the field. Marshall, a 1901 VMI graduate, knew that Allman also hailed from the institute, but that carried no weight. As Allman later recalled, quote, General Marshall never let such associations, especially of people he had not seen for years, interfere with his actions toward an officer, especially a junior officer, end quote. Allman began his, tradition, his transition to the Army's senior leadership with attendance at the U.S. Army War College from 1933 to 1934, where his classmates included future five stars Omar Bradley, William Halsey, and 43 other future flag officers. After graduation, he was assigned to the War Department general staff. Allman's love for training was rooted in his own thirst for knowledge, and he lobbied hard for the chance to attend the Air Corps Tactical School, a precursor to the present-day Air War College. He also attended the Naval War College, where his performance earned him a teaching spot. He turned that down that job and went to Sixth Corps, where he spent the last year before the next war conducting the large-scale maneuver exercises that would prepare him for his next assignment. On a crisp December Sunday in 1941, Colonel Ned Allman, 6-Core G3 operations, sat in Griffith Stadium in Washington watching the Washington Redskins defeat the Philadelphia Eagles. I have to point out for you Eagles fans, it was a tough time. Uh, the NFL was 10, 10, uh, 10 teams. Uh, each team got to play each other twice. And so the, um, the good news is the Eagles' record was twice as good as it had been the year before. The bad news is they had won two games in 1941. They were beaten by the Redskins twice, and by the Giants twice, also by the Brooklyn Dodgers twice. Operating as part of the Sixth Arm, First Army, Sixth Corps had performed well in the Carolina maneuvers, and as units and as its units began began to move back to their home station in New England. Allman stopped off to watch the game. He later recalled hearing an announcement over the loudspeaker for all officers to return immediately to their units. Shortly thereafter, Allman learned of the attack on Pearl Harbor. As the Army once again expanded, Allman was promoted to Brigadier General and very shortly received command of the 92nd Infantry Division, one of only two African American divisions that would see combat during World War II. The Army recognized Allman's skills as a trainer when selecting him for this billet No white officer sought this assignment, but having received the mission, Allman threw himself into it. General Marshall recognized that commanders of black troops must be selected with even greater care than others, and Allman believed that he possessed the knack that Marshall required for that duty. Allman harbored bigoted attitudes against African-Americans, but he was not alone in the US military or in civilian society. Most contemporary senior leaders shared similarly similarly low opinions about the ability of black men to fight effectively. The nation itself was undeniably racist, and segregation was the law of the land. The years since that war have seen the glorification of the greatest generation, with all racist notions and ideas whitewashed with a veneer of honor. But the context of the time was somewhat different. Much has been made of Allman's command of a black division, but little is known about the challenges he faced in commanding large African-American units in a racially segregated army and society. The division initially had all white officers, but began to receive new black officers directly from OCS shortly after the division activated. When Allman activated the 92nd division at Fort McClellan, Alabama, it was split among four bases. No civilian community wanted large numbers of black soldiers in their midst, so the regiments trained individually at Camp Robinson, Arkansas, Camp Atterbury, Indiana, and Camp Breckenridge, Kentucky. Allman dealt with all the normal challenges that a division commander faced, such as housing, feeding, training, and equipping his unit, in addition to the burdens of separation and segregation. His unit experienced some of the same turbulence that other divisions did, including providing cadres, of officers and NCOs to other African-American units. The educational limitations of of his troops, the prevailing social environment, and growing pressure from the black community and his own officers made his task more difficult. After several months of training at widely separated locations, Allman consolidated his unit at Fort Huachuca, Arizona, which the army specifically selected for black troops because of its remoteness. Many of the racial problems he experienced at the smaller bases became magnified as the unit came together. Allman also began to feel the pressure from the black community through the black press. He told his men that his focus was on building the division, not changing the status quo. The rule was that the divisions would use the laws of the states in which they were stationed. He told his troops in a speech, this is the quote, The existence of these these laws and customs is a fact. The personnel of this division must avoid any activity or conduct that will interfere with military training or with the discipline of the command. It is not our function to attempt to alter the existing order. The problem is social, not military. When we remember that numbers of persons have donated their entire lifetimes unsuccessfully trying to change these ways of living, we're forced to realize that any effort by this division to that end would be an improper diversion of its time and energy and contrary to the interests of national defense. The men of this division will receive fair and just treatment and they will obey the laws of the state and its communities." These war years also saw changes for Allman's family. As Peggy married Thomas T. Galloway on his graduation day from West Point in 1942, Tom joined the Army Air Corps and reported for flight training. He qualified on the P-38 Lightning and by the next year was flying operational missions in Europe. He and Peggy welcomed a son, Thomas Jr., Tommy, in 1943. Sadly, Captain Thomas Galloway was reported missing and presumed dead in mid-1944. Allman's son, Ned Jr., graduated from West Point in 1943, commissioned into the infantry, and was assigned to the 45th Infantry Division. Despite more than two years of training, longer than any other division, the War Department initially hesitated to deploy the 92nd Division because of the perception of black soldier performance. Rumors swirled that the division would not deploy and they took a toll on morale and compounded training problems. Allman argued that his soldiers were well-trained and deserved the chance to serve. He later remembered protesting to Lieutenant General Leslie J. McNair, Army Ground Forces Commander, quote, General, you can't let me down on this purpose. I promised these officers, and I tried to do a good job, and so have they, and I promised them that if they stood behind me, I would stand behind them, end quote. Allman's plea worked, and the War Department scheduled the full division to deploy. The division's officers and men were jaded from months of speculation as to whether or not they would ever go to combat. Allman gave them the good news on April 4, 1944. Quote Four days ago, I was visited by three officers from Washington with instructions that this division is slated for combat duty in an active theater in the near future. That the first element to leave is a combat team, and that combat team is the 370. Now, what does that mean? There is not a man here who does not realize the importance of it. This is a colored division with both white and colored officers. This is a cohesive military unit. You have just shown it. This is a unit that the colored race should be proud of, and they will be before we are through. And not only the colored race, but every American who knows enough to read about this war. You must take great satisfaction in the fact that you are now about to actually prove your worth. End quote. After arriving in Italy, the 92nd Division gained a 4th Regiment, The 366th Infantry, a separate all black regiment that had deployed in 1943. It had been split up on air base ground duty, guard duty, and had lost unit cohesion. The addition of this unit proved to be a disruptive influence in the division. After initial success in the fall of 1944, the 92nd had several failures in combat. Allman launched an attack in February 1945 in which the units reportedly melted away under pressure from the Germans. General Marshall happened to be touring Europe at the time and observed the action firsthand. Rather than relieve Allman, Marshall approved a division reorganization. Allman Allman released the 366th Infantry Regiment to 5th Army control. He then ordered all the best soldiers in the remaining three regiments into one regiment and released the two remaining regiments to go to the division rear for training. To replace those two regiments, Allman gained the white 473rd Infantry, commanded by Colonel William P. Yarborough, who had already made his name as an airborne commander, and the 442nd Infantry Nisei Regiment, whose combat record was already legendary. This made the 92nd Division the most racially integrated division in the Army, and it performed well in the final weeks of the war. Just as Allman's plans and training were beginning to pay off and the newly organized division was meeting its objectives, he received tragic news. He learned by letter from his wife that his son, Ned Jr., had been killed leading his infantry unit in France. This was a double blow after his son-in-law's death only a few months earlier. He wrote a poignant letter to Margaret, "'Tonight your letter came to tell me that Ned had been killed,' For some days now, I've had a premonition that something had happened to him, but last night, your letter of 29 March said you had a note from him on 18 March, and it reassured me. He was a fine boy. I shall always mourn his loss, but with unmeasured pride that he had a a part in destroying as many cursed Germans as he could. Your letter is a brave one, and I'm very proud of you that you can be as true a soldier in your way as he was in his. You... Peggy, Tommy, and I have proud memories of Tommy and Ned, and we have the courage not to whimper as so many do. They died noble deaths for many less noble. But they served their native land with supreme honor and sacrifice. Nothing is higher. When I come home, we must make a fine man of Tommy, and we have no better models than Tommy and Ned were. I won't urge you to be brave, for you have already demonstrated that. So I say, be proud of Ned and take much satisfaction in having raised a fine boy who has borne himself nobly. All my love, and I wish I could be there with you for a moment to say I love you and that we shall bear our grief in nobleness. End quote. Allman always doted on his grandson, but after Ned's death, Tommy Jr. replaced him as his lost son. They remained very close for the remainder of Allman's life. By a tragic coincidence, 4th Corps Commander Lieutenant General Will, Willis D. Crittenberger had received word of the death of his own son just days earlier. Allman wrote to Crittenberger, consoling him for his loss and notifying him of Ned Jr.'s death. Quote, You and I appreciate by these events and those surrounding us here the full measure of the tragedy of war. And after this one is over, may God forbid another. I just wanted to take this means of sympathizing with an old friend. End quote. I might add that Willis Crittenberger had three sons. Uh, the second of his two sons, or his, actually his, uh, by his, the, his uh, second son was killed in Vietnam in 1966, shortly after he graduated from the Army War College here. The division performed well in the last weeks of the war, but its combat record was mixed. General Marshall had given Ullman command of the 92nd Infantry Division because he believed Ullman could make black troops succeed if anyone could, but no one in the white army leadership believed that black units were capable of success. Ullman received orders in July 1945 to relinquish command of the 92nd Infantry Division and report to Camp Swift, Texas, to command the 2nd Infantry Division for the planned Japanese invasion. Allman admitted he was anxious to command a white division in another war zone, clearly an opportunity to redeem himself. But the war ended, and he spent eight months demobilizing soldiers. Allman next found himself on the staff of Army Forces Pacific, later Far East Command. Allman's rise from an unknown staff officer to one of General Douglas MacArthur's most trusted advisors is an important part of his story. Serving as a trusted agent to one of the Army's most powerful and legendary officers and basking in the light of MacArthur's favor, he tried to put the shame he felt over 92nd Division's collapse behind him. Almond soon came to discover that the divide between the Far East Command staff and the Pentagon was more than physical. Being a Marshall man had earned him the opportunity for high command, and becoming a MacArthur man would do the same but it also put him at odds with the Army's senior leadership. Ullman's caustic personality also brought him into conflict with other key leaders. I open with a short passage from the book as the Korean War began. That sudden North Korean attack had caught the U.S. Army and the world unaware. This slide shows you a little bit about what the forces looked like as they attempted to get ready to go to Korea. The military had been reduced drastically after World War II and both the Army and the Marines had great difficulty marshaling enough forces to meet the threat. As the Eighth Army worked quickly to establish a defense in Korea, Allman formed a planning group called Force X that became the nucleus of a new corps headquarters that would lead the UN counterattack into Korea at Incheon. MacArthur stirred controversy by appointing Allman to command the new 10th Corps using the Roman numeral X to play on the Force X name. MacArthur assigned the 7th Infantry Division and the 1st Marine Division to 10th Corps, but there was less there than it appears, as you can see from the slide. The 7th Division had been stripped to fill other divisions deploying to Korea in July and August 1950, and MacArthur appealed to the Korean government for augmentation by Korean citizens. Some of those recruits, called Korean augmentees to the U.S. Army, were the first Catooses, They went to Japan and received the very briefest of training before going to the division. The 1st Marine Division was was in even worse shape as it did not even exist at the time but was shortly activated at Camp Pendleton, California. That division's only active regiment deployed to Korea in August while the other two regiments formed at Camp Pendleton. MacArthur chose particular command and control arrangements that caused problems among some of the senior commanders. The 10th Corps was assigned to make the Incheon landing, but Allman would report directly to MacArthur rather than to 8th Army Commander, General Walton Walker. This initially reflected MacArthur's belief that the Incheon landing would end the war quickly, but he maintained it after the capture of Seoul, both because of geography and because of his distrust of Walker. Allman also faced challenges with the commander of the 1st Marine Division, Major General Oliver P. Smith. Their first meeting did not go well and things never improved. Smith reflected the Marine Corps view that a Marine should command an amphibious operation and he had no faith in Alman's abilities. Alman had great things to say about Marine units in general. They clashed repeatedly throughout 1st Marine Division's assignment because of his relationship with Smith. In the first of many letters he wrote to Margaret over the next 10 months, Ullman praised the Navy and Marines. Quote, this has gone just about as planned and a little better speed. The cooperation of the Navy and the spirit of the Marines has been wonderful, and I'm sure the 7th Division will do equally well when they are in it. The Marines are wonderful and a pleasure to command. U.S. Army Deputy Chief of Staff, Lieutenant General Matthew B. Ridgway sent Almond a personal note that surely buoyed his spirits. Dear Ned, The full fruits of brilliant planning and courageous execution seem about to be gathered. In the flood tide of victory, personal messages will count little. But I do want you to know how deeply we all rejoice in current developments. You're about to inscribe another and unsurpassed chapter in our combat records. Congratulations, Matt. Despite Allman's good words about the Marines and the successful landing, Relations between Allman and Smith continued to deteriorate rapidly. The attack on Seoul brought their differences into sharp relief. The photo on the left was taken as Allman planned the attack on Seoul. As Allman and his other commanders gathered around the map, you can guess by the body language that Major General Smith that told the Marine did not fully accept Allman's plan. During this conference, Allman told Smith that if the Marines did not move faster, he was sending an army infantry regiment to assist. Allman wrote later that he liked that idea not at all. After the successful landing, Allman went to observe the Han River crossing operation on September 25, 1950, along with Vice Admiral Struble, Colonel McCa- uh, William McCaffrey, Lieutenant Colonel John Childs, and his aide, Lieutenant Alexander Haig, and some other officers. Under the pressure of war, Haig noticed another of his chief's very troubling traits, personal courage. Quote, in combat situations, he exposed himself to mortal risk several times a day, and if you happen to be his aide, he exposed you to the same risk with the same insouciance. End quote. Writing decades later and with what much more combat experience, Haig observed that he had occasionally seen other soldiers who not only mastered their fear, but, to, but appeared to be fearless, and Almond was one of them. Quote, in regard to his own safety, Allman was the most reckless person I've ever known and luckiest. As far as I can tell, he was utterly without fear, end quote. Haig described an incident in his autobiography in which they went to observe the crossing of the Han River, and that's actually on the, the picture on the right. They started taking machine gun fire from the other side, and everyone jumped below the level of the hill except Almond. Instead, he stood there calmly for a few seconds and then slowly walked down to where everyone else was. This is one of my favorite uh, pictures from the Allman collection because, as you can see, this is the amphibious former amphibious commander, Vice Admiral Struble. Allman is showing him on the map where they are and what they're doing, and Struble is spooning behind Allman. He has realized that he is a sailor on the beach, and he does not need to be there. Having mounted a successful landing at at Incheon, MacArthur next conceived another landing at Wonsan on Korea's east coast that would finally cut off the North Korean forces. Almond's 10th Corps led this landing as well, but with the addition of the 3rd Infantry Division recently arrived from the United States. Like the other divisions, it too was short of personnel and arrived with only two regiments. The 65th Infantry, an independent active regiment from Puerto Rico, became its 3rd Regiment. Allman then led the race to the Yalu, commanding both his corps of three divisions and a South Korean corps of two divisions, essentially a small field army. Many historians judge Allman harshly for his tactical abilities, but few address the challenges he faced in Korea, such as the sheer scope of the mission, the inhospitable terrain, and the forces available. Most people today think about Korea only as a flat map like this, when in reality, the ground actually looks like this, with the 6,000-foot Tayback Range uh, going, running down the length of the uh, peninsula. Allman very succinctly described the situation in North Korea to in a letter to a friend. Quote, You are aware of what we face here. Try to imagine a winter campaign in the Canadian Rockies without benefit of a single first-class road, and you about have it. The logistics of maneuver problems are tremendous but are being solved as rapidly as our resources permit. It was a genuine lifesaver to get the third division. While it is concentrating for future employment, I'm currently using using it to clean up the southern end of my zone where the guerrillas have been a real menace. The Chinese entry into the war in November 1950 caught UN forces unprepared as more than a million Chinese streamed into North Korea. The mountainous terrain did not allow much cohesion between either the 10th Corps units or the 8th Army units. Allman's five divisions were scattered from the Manchurian border to Wonsan, here, with the two ROK divisions furthest north. The 1st Marine Division was consolidated around the chosen reservoir here, The 3rd Infantry Division was stretched but still cohesive at once on at the bottom of the map. But the 7th Infantry Division's regiments were widely scattered. The 31st Regiment on the east side of the chosen reservoir while the 32nd and 17th scattered in this area. MacArthur initially ordered a pullback from the Manchurian border after the Chinese intervention and Allman ordered the 1st Marine Division and the 7th Division to withdraw to Ham Hung. The withdrawal of the Marines and what became known as Task Force Faith incurred most of the casualties on the withdrawal, as you see depicted on this map, 56 miles here. As the situation worsened, MacArthur ordered Almond to withdraw all of his troops from North Korea, Allman then mounted one of the largest evacuations in history. That operation rescued over 100,000 American and Korean soldiers and Marines with all of their equipment, as well as an additional 100,000 Korean civilian refugees, but not before the disaster at Chosen Reservoir. He claimed the lives of hundreds of his men. This is the evacuation procedure here. The last ship left Hung Nam on Christmas Eve, 1950, and arrived in Ulsan on Christmas Day. During the retreat from the North, 8th Army Commander Lieutenant General Walton Walker was killed in a jeep accident. The Army immediately sent Lieutenant General Matthew B. Ridgway to replace him. Allman's pugnacious nature as a that he had displayed throughout his time as 10th Corps Commander did not change when the 10th Corps came into 8th Army. When Ridgway arrived in Korea to assume command, he immediately began to assess 8th Army's condition. Ridgway was a breath of fresh air to the 8th, but he found it in poor shape with a defeatist attitude and in the middle of one of the longest retreats in U.S. Army history. He needed not only to stop the withdrawal and reinvigorate the Army, but also to prepare for a large Chinese attack building just north of Seoul. He immediately set out to meet with his corps commanders, two of whom presented him with plans to withdraw to Pusan. He found 9th Corps commander, Lieutenant General John Coulter, to be defeatist and resolved to relieve him as quickly as possible. 1st Corps commander, Lieutenant General Frank Milburn, was slow and lacked initiative, but he was an old friend and Ridgway hesitated to relieve him. Almond was the only commander who wanted to attack and his Corps staff had already been working on plans. Ridgway met with Allman on December 15th 28, 1950, for about a half an hour. Allman later remembered, quote, General Ridgway greeted me very pleasantly and wholeheartedly, and when I reported to him, to him, he outlined his intentions to fight cohesively and kill as many Chinese as possible. Those words were my guidelines, and I flew that night to Tegu to spend the night where, there with the 8th Army staff. If Ridgway bore any, Allman any ill will, Allman did not report it to his wife. Ullman's initial tactical failings and personality clashes aside, Ridgway had found what he needed, an aggressive Corps commander. Ridgway found disciplined, dispirited commanders and staff officers everywhere he went, but Ned Ullman was ready to attack and do so immediately. 1st Marine Division Commander Major General Oliver P. Smith was not impressed with U.S. Army operations in general, and he despised Ullman in particular, but even he was moved to render a somewhat positive judgment on Ullman in comparison to his peers. Writing many years after the war, Smith gave Allman his due, albeit grudgingly. Quote, certainly no one could accuse General Allman, the corps commander, of of defeatism. My objections throughout had been to his grandiose concepts, which often had little regard for time and space factors, logistical considerations, and the integrity of units. Allman adapted quickly to Ridgeway's mode of operations, and even as he did so, though, Allman sought to correct the main thing he saw wrong with Army units, a lack of training discipline. Ridgway visited on average once every two or three days, and Allman did the same thing with his units. He set up a schedule to go to each regiment in the Corps, one battalion per day, doing formal in-ranks and equipment inspections. Skip a slide here. Allman concluded his career in, as the first Commandant of the U.S. Army War College after its arrival in Carlisle. The War College had closed in 1940 in Washington and was reopened in 1950 at Fort Leavenworth. That was always designed to be a temporary location until a more suitable post could be found. The Deputy Commandant, Major General Arthur Trudeau, remembered Carlisle Barracks as a small college-like setting which housed the U.S. Army Field Medical School during World War II. The medical school moved to Bethesda after the war and there were several smaller schools here in the interwar years between World War II and Korea. Trudeau lobbied hard to move the War College to Carlisle Barracks reasoning, sing with me now. It was close enough to DC for people to get there, but far enough away to keep senior officials from bothering the school. We often use that. The school closed at Fort Leavenworth immediately after the graduation of the class of 1951 and began to move. Paulman arrived in time to greet the class of 1952 and began to make changes to the the curriculum as soon as he arrived. Given his experience with post-war occupations in Germany and Japan, and his experience in dealing with local and national governments in Germany, Italy, Japan, and Korea, he believed that the Army officer's education should be much broader. Having attended all three service war colleges and with deep joint experience during the war, Allman also believed that Army officers should have a much broader joint perspective. He also used the time to study the issue of close air support with the Air Force. He ran into some bureaucratic roadblocks because senior officers, such as General Mark Clark, Chief of Army Field Forces, believed that the Army War College should focus exclusively on Army issues. Despite these impediments, however, Allman became an activist commandant and put his stamp on the curriculum. He believed that most army officers did not have a clear understanding of the international and financial aspects of the nation and instituted a class trip to New York City to see and understand the United Nations and Wall Street. He also believed that most army officers understood their tactical level commands, but did not sufficiently understand higher level command or strategic issues. He he instituted a trip to the Pentagon with key members of the army and defense staffs briefing the class. Those of you who are not associated with the Army War College, those trips continue today. The Army War College class of 1952 was only about a hundred students, all Army. Allman lobbied to add students from other services and also other agencies. He also recruited the first civilian faculty member, Frank Hopkins, from the State Department. Allman's been accused of running a command nursery. In effect, making sure that he helped his people advance in their careers. Of this, he is absolutely guilty as charged, as is nearly every other general officer in history. Detractors might call it favoritism, but clearly Allman was a good judge of character. Any one of his former officers, despite their loyalty to him, would tell you that the hardest thing to do working for Allman was succeeding because just because you were successful yesterday does not mean you will be successful today. The success of Allman's officers, especially those from Korea, is significant in that all but one of his primary staff officers at corps level and most of their deputies and almost all of his regimental commanders later became general officers. If you worked for Allman and were not killed or relieved, you made flag rank. This was due not just to their skills, but Allman also aggressively pushed them forward for future promotions. So what should you take away from all this? Well, a book, of course. They're for sale outside. But I'd like to address Allman's legacy. We Touched on that briefly earlier. We often find it difficult today to honestly confront our nation and our army's racist past. And it's much easier to have a figure such as Allman to whom we can assign blame. But this chart places Allman firmly in the context of his time in which all of his formative youth and his professional career coincided with federally mandated segregation, supported by widespread social discrimination. Since his death, his views have come to dominate his place in history. He is now often viewed as the Army's racist, but Allman reflected the attitudes of the Army and of the society at the time. Someone once recommended to me that I should title this book The Racist Racist Way of War and further enshrine Allman as the Army's racist, but to do so ignores the context of his time. I'm not trying to save Allman from, from himself, and while most of his contemporaries eventually supported desegregation or at least acquiesced in it, Allman did not. His retirement brought new activities, but he found himself unprepared for a changing world. Allman stubbornly held on to bigoted attitudes about race, but also exhibited an unfaltering commitment to the military profession. This critical examination of Allman's life and career treats both the good and the bad and places him in a broader context and presents a more complete picture of a flawed man, yet gifted officer. After Allman's death in June 1979, his friend, Lieutenant General William McCaffrey, wrote, uh, the, also a former Army War College Commandant, wrote, quote, he was a brave and energetic soldier. I knew him well and respected him greatly. I also liked him very much. He did have a full life and a good one, but I know very well he had his share of disappointments and sorrows, End quote. Another of Allman's friends later summed up his personality when he said, quote, when it paid to be aggressive, Ned was aggressive. When it paid to be cautious, Ned was aggressive. It was a fitting epitaph for the man. Thank you very much.
0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have plenty of time for questions. Who would like to start us off? Right here.
1: Easy ones, please. So, uh, do you have insights into why the black division or the yeah the black division failed in italy were there more details uh, yes. about that yes uh, the the largest problem that that the army faced in building black divisions was the the educational level of the troops all of the all soldiers took the army general classification test and uh, the The AGCT was, you're expected to, to come out in sort of a bell curve. So there'd be a very few uh, that scored in category number one, and then a few and more in category number two, and the vast majority in category three, a few fewer in category four, and very, very few in category five. One being very, very good, and five being um, very, very bad. Um, The problem was that that wasn't true for the black divisions. It was very, very, very few in Category 1, only a few more in Category 2, 3, and 4, and a whole lot in Category 5. Uh, some could not even take the test because they were illiterate. That education problem caused challenges throughout the Army for both white and black soldiers, but in, in other divisions, you're able to smooth them out and push them out to different, uh, you know, absorb them a little bit better. In the black divisions, they were all sent to one to one uh, place. Uh, also, as part of that, as other units—not division size, but other regiments or or service units—were um, uh, were deploying, they would leave black soldiers that had not been able to deploy for whatever reason in what were called casual camps. Those were often sent to the divisions to retrain. Uh, that constant cycling was, uh, was even tougher for the black divisions than it, than it was for the, the white divisions. The very, very few small number of, of, um, of uh, Category 1s went to OCS and, uh, and, and the Air Corps. So that's where the Tuskegee Airmen come from. Uh, those in Category 1 and 2 also went to the technical branches. So artillery and engineers actually did pretty well. It's just that the the infantry fell way down on, on uh, from the educational perspective. It was it took a long time to train, over twice as long as it took to train other divisions. That's just from the educational standpoint. There are, um, not everybody was as willing as Allman was to to um, to support them, um, including the officers. A lot of the white officers did not want to be there and tried to get out. So there was there was prejudice throughout. When I said that they, they had separation as well as segregation, uh, they had to have sever- even on the four installations they were on, they had to have segregated facilities and all that took time and just it was, uh, it was really hard. Once they finally got to, uh, to Italy, they had lost a lot of the cohesion that they built. Any
0: other, any other questions? All right,
2: right over here. Um, Mike, could you explain some of the problems Alman had with the Air Force? You alluded to that earlier, but then you didn't quite mention it. Right. So, if you could cover that, that's always a topic I enjoy.
1: <laughs> Don't we all? Uh, and the Air Force colonels list is out today. So, any Air, new Air Force colonels? No. Okay. Um, the the problem was that Alma was somewhat spoiled. In the first portion, first several months, he was he, he was in Korea. The Marines had an entire Marine Air Wing that was assigned to the First Marine Division, and it was, it was sort of jokingly called the 10th Corps Air Force because he could call upon those anytime they uh, they uh, they needed them. Uh, they did a lot of close air support, but a lot of things had happened in, in the military in the years between World War II and Korea, not the least of which is we created the Air Force and the, the dominant figure in, the, in his ascendance was Curtis LeMay. So it was, it was all about uh, solving all problems with strategic bombers, aluminum overcast. Um, close air support was not something that the Air Force was really uh, a big fan of doing fly close to the ground when you're landing kind of thing. Um, once the 10th Corps lost the 1st Marine Division after it uh, evacuated from Hong Nam and, and and then moved, uh, linked up with uh, with 8th Army, it lost the, the 1st Marine Division and the air wing, and it became much, much harder to get close air support. And when they did, they had to go through a bureaucratic process of, you know, we need, we need all... Uh, air orders uh, 48 hours out or 24 hours out. Well, that's kind of hard to do when the guy's right here in front of me, and I can't wait 24 hours for close air support to come in and, and shoot the guy. So this this was an ongoing problem that, that Allman fought at his level. He told all of his regimental commanders if you need air support, route it through the Corps headquarters so that instead of you, Colonel, asking for air support, me, the three star, will go ask for air support. And um, Almond was an abrasive guy and sometimes he used uh, short declarative sentences and and, uh, direct language and it offended sensibilities sometimes. So he didn't always, he didn't work and play well with others and uh, those sorts of things kind of uh, exacerbated that.
0: Thank you for an excellent briefing. It was uh, was very very good. Earlier in the brief, you had mentioned that uh, General Marshall was looking for certain qualities, I believe, for commanders of African-American units. So I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit and uh, see if there's any applicability of that for today for different types of units, whether they're multinational or... Well, um,
1: one of the... Um, the uh, the things that's unmistakable, which caused a rumor is um, most of the officers who commanded the black divisions were Southerners. Um, so it was widely believed that um, Marshall picked Southerners because he quote knew, he knew that they knew how knew how to work with those people. Um, I'd say the evidence is, Pretty, pretty damning. That uh, that may have well have been the case, but more, more than that, Allman or Marshall was looking for people with very who were very technically competent. Beyond the fact, beyond the the Southern issue. Um, one of the reasons that Allman was selected, I believe, is because he, because of all of his training. His training ability and his, his detail oriented training. The knack came in. They knew that they would have to train and retrain and re retrain and re re retrain these soldiers over and over again. So that person, that knack had to be a person who really wanted to get into that kind of training. That's exactly the kind of person that Allman was. Uh, That is what made his unit as successful as it was, and it's actually what he needed to have in Korea as well. Allman was widely regarded as a micromanager. He's guilty as charged there too, but in Korea, for instance, he was frequently teaching regimental commanders what they needed to do. Um, He's often... um, Criticized for how his lack of, initial lack of handling ability for the, for moving the cores around. Guilty there too, but he also had trouble, he had so much trouble getting the small units to understand what they needed to do and going to basic small unit actions, blocking and tackling. That 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 was one of his his, his bigger problems in Korea. As a matter of fact, while they're waiting to make the second landing, put the seventh infantry division in essentially in, in class and had them go back to basics for how to how to do just basic infantry functions.
0: Mike, I understand that uh, Almond had a tendency to uh, rotor in to uh, like a, a unit that was circled or in heavy combat hand out some medals and then uh, rotor out. Yes. have any specific instances of that?
1: He absolutely did. He he. Uh, first of all, he loved to fly, loved to fly. When he graduated from the Air Corps Tactical School at um, at uh, Maxwell Air Force Base in 1938, and that part of his disagreement with the Air Force is he kind of thought he knew them from the inside and and knew more than they did. But um, he loved to fly. And one there's a um, a newspaper report. Uh, written about him, uh, a story about him said that he won't drive two miles if he can fly, and it's absolutely true. He, he flew everywhere. and I'll come back to that in a second. Well, what he would do is he would go in and it didn't matter where you were, uh, he would either helicopter in or fly in. All regiments were required to to, to build a landing strip next to their regimental headquarters so the Cork man come visit. And he did carry a bag full of medals around with him. Now, we think today this is a fairly, fairly common practice, but um, then it wasn't. It was it was fairly unusual. Um, one instance was uh, Colonel Don Faith, who later uh, was uh, was killed at Chosen and received the Medal of Honor. A few a day or so before that happened, Ullman came in and gave him a Silver Star and said, "All right, where's another soldier that?" that deserves a decoration. And um, Faith was really put off by that. He was, you know, not to speak ill of Medal of Honor recipients, especially those who earned it posthumously, but he he was kind of had a rock in his shoe. And uh, it irritated him. And so he pointed out some random soldier, and so Allman gave him a silver star, and he flew away. And uh, Faith... Tore off his silver star and threw it down on the ground. Uh, today we don't think it we, we think it is unusual if a general officer flies somewhere and doesn't have a bag full of medals or coins or something. But that was the that was the time. What was interesting about that was he was known for being stingy during World War II. And as a matter of fact, he did not like to give medals for quote unquote losing operations, kind of got in trouble for some of that. Things had changed by the time he got to Korea, and, and not only did he hand out medals a lot, but, but uh, Colonel McLean, who was Task Force McLean, killed just before Faith, uh, he gave him a Silver Star, and he flew away, and uh, on the way back, he wrote the citation for it, and he wrote a letter to McLean and said, this is how you have to take care of your soldiers. Make sure that they get get a medal as soon as they, you know, as soon as possible the action. And don't forget to write up the 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 citation. And he sent that back to McLean. He really, you know, he he really believed in it as a, you know, as a as a morale issue. Now, for some reason, the uh, maybe the uh, the the structure was uh, was out of whack a little bit. But he also gave away. A couple of Distinguished Service Crosses. Didn't know they went were down were uh, delegated down to corps commander level. But um, at Chosen, as he flew into Chosen, um, he uh, he gave uh, General Smith a Distinguished Service Cross. Smith later reported that he had tears in his eyes when he did. So the other thing that's important about that, besides the medals, is it didn't matter where you were. MacArthur or, or Almond would come and see you. It didn't matter if the bullets were flying or not. He, he, he didn't stay in the rear of the gear. Every single day, unless he could not fly because of weather, every single day, he was out flying around to the troops. And if, if he arrived at your headquarters, regimental commander, and you weren't there, you better be up front. <laughs> you better be in front of him, not behind him. But every single day, he went somewhere And if if the
0: bullets are flying there, he went there first. All right. We have one last question right over here. Thank you, sir, for your presentation. It was very
1: good. Um, Could you elaborate just a little bit more when you mentioned
0: when the question was posed about the problems that uh, African-Americans at that time were having with their literacy? Because as you mentioned, during that time, during that same pool, there were... People in that same group who were getting pulled off to be pilots to fly airplanes, right. field artillery engineers, which are very technical. Right, infantry is not a technical branch or field. It's
1: bayonet and rifle and step forward. So, could you elaborate a little bit more on the illiteracy aspect of it, as to what they could not understand or right. grasp that
0: would be an infantryman?
1: Right, um, you're you're absolutely right. As a matter of fact, when 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 Alman had a had the most uncomfortable meeting in the world with Marshall about what to do about the 92nd Division in Italy. Um, he said, Marshall asked him what he needed, and he, he said, he put his, his, his hand on the map behind the, the regimental rear boundaries and said, I need everything north of that line. In other words, fit, replace all the infantry. Artillery and the engineers are okay. Now, where the problem comes is further back. And it comes from where the troops were initially drafted from. A lot of his troops were drafted from the South, which had much worse um, educational opportunities than uh, the North did. So as those soldiers took out, and not all of them, but you know they're mixtures of others, but largely from the South, those are the ones who had the most problems educationally. Um, so as the AGCT scores were revealed, then the better ones went to, if they didn't go to OCS or, or Air Corps, they went to artillery and engineers, which made it even worse for the infantry. Now, there is a converse example of that. I mentioned that he was given a, a another regiment in um, in Italy the 366. It was a, or a separate regiment, and on average it had a higher education level than any of his other regiments. There were about I think four PhDs, seven or eight lawyers, lots of people with, with, uh, with uh, graduate and further education. Much, much different, but it had come out of Massachusetts, I believe. So it's Catchment area was the Northeast, which had a, had a much greater um, education level than those in the South, uh, and almost all the officers out of that um, class had out of that regiment had come through uh, either Howard University or Wilberforce University, both ROTC programs, and so it was it was a much higher caliber of uh, of both officers and enlisted in the 366. Unfortunately, they've been split up for the best part of a year. Had no unit cohesion, and they fell apart on the battlefield. Does that answer your question? Yeah. One last. the real one, one last
2: question. Doctor Lynch, a question for you regarding the uh, um, his General almonds antipathy towards African Americans, at least in uh, in. 9 second did it evolve at all during Korea did he work did he have uh, for example did he have uh, I know uh, integrated units with uh, I know there's a picture you showed with uh, a uh, black um, soldier standing at attention in right. front of him within the second infantry division um, what, what was did, did his views change uh, did they ch- if not then did they change ever no, no, that's that's one part second part. Um, You mentioned that uh, the uh, 92nd became integrated with the Nisei Regiment, the 442nd. Um, How was his relationship with the Nisei Troops, with with the antipathy for everybody, or is it just specifically towards African Americans? And uh, lastly, you mentioned the uh, two Korean divisions that were attached uh, to 10th Corps, and what was the relationship with those uh, Korean units?
1: I I love these multi-part, Ph.D. exam questions, so get comfortable. Uh, so uh, the, uh, the, the the first part, um, no, he never really changed. But um, I think when he first started, he really, really wanted the division to succeed. A lot of people have said that he was a bad commander because he didn't want his division to, he didn't want them to succeed. Never happened in the Army's history. Commanders want their units to succeed, and, and they were his soldiers. Um, by the way, he also, uh, he, he believed that there was a, when, when they were having separate but equal, he really believed in the equal part and he spent a lot of his time raising sand with the War Department and with the local community saying, okay, what did my soldiers get? I want it right now. Um, so he was, a, he was an advocate in that way for, for black soldiers. I might also add that he ordered all of his, uh, his officer messes were integrated because officers were a separate group and they are a mess together. One of his regimental commanders re resegregated his mess when they got to Fort Huachuca, and Alman relieved him. The time when they were in, about this time in 1945, when they launched this attack, that is when Almond really lost faith in the idea that large black units could do anything successfully. He believed that individuals could do things successfully. And I'll tell you that the night he found out that his son died, the two people in the in the tent with him were uh, Lieutenant Colonel Bill McCaffrey, his chief of staff, and uh, Chaplain Beasley, who at that time was one of the, the senior black officers in the regiment, in the, in the division. Uh, Chaplain Beasley remained his friend for the rest of his life. Um, but as a group, he didn't think that these large black units could succeed after what he saw in February nineteen forty five I don't think he got into the intellectual challenge of figuring out that what you just said is that segregated units don't succeed, and therefore why don't we integrate units? He also thought they shouldn't be integrated as large as or segregated as large as division, but they could be in battalion or or uh, regiment level. The picture that you saw he was um, inspecting a soldier from the uh, 3rd Battalion, 9th Infantry which had been segregated before the war and went to Korea uh, I mean it, the 9th Regiment had been integrated and that was one black battalion in a in a uh, white regiment. Uh, interesting enough when what he's probably saying to that soldier is were you in the 92nd because everywhere he went when he met black soldiers, he asked them if they were in the 92nd, or they asked, or they reminded him that they had been. He ran into several of his soldiers, former soldiers from uh, from Korea. Second, uh, you asked about the uh, the Nisei regiment. Uh, he absolutely loved the Nisei regiment because they were exactly what you think they were. Uh, they were tremendous fighters. They were our Gurkhas. And uh, they even said the the Nisei said that they couldn't understand what the 92nd had been doing because they when they arrived and they launched their first attack they took more ground in the morning than the, than the regiment they replaced had taken in five weeks. But they also realized that the segregation problems that the black soldiers had. Experienced both in their private lives and in and in the army, was pretty tough. How much um, sympathy they had varied because a lot of those Nisei soldiers had family in concentration camps back in the states, and there was also trouble between two of their battalions, Nisei and Nisei, second and first and second generation Japanese. So there's different different flavor going on there. Uh he had no problem with the with the with the Koreans at all. Uh, the problem with the Koreans was controlling them. Um, so he didn't have a a, a a racial problem with them per se. It was controlling their actions and and uh, you know keeping them under under guard or not under guard, but keeping them in line or not having them dissolve, as happened a couple of times. There is one incident. From Korea, that Almond is kind of, um, uh, he comes out badly. When the 65th Infantry Regiment arrived from Puerto Rico, um, he asked the regimental commander if they were black or white. And the regimental commander was shocked. The regimental commander was white, by the way. And he said, well, they're not not black. They're Puerto Rican. You know, they're they're sort of white. He said, okay, I just wondered. Well... Everybody remembers that. And when the 65th Regiment, I'm going to almost quote from my master's thesis I read on this, Uh, when the 65th Infantry Regiment failed and ran off the battlefield two years after Allman retired, it was because Allman had said that terrible thing when they first arrived. Everybody forgets that Walton Walker said the same thing Several other officers said the same thing. These are Puerto Ricans that don't speak our language and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, that answer the question, all three of them, all three parts.
0: All right, Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to present uh, Colonel Harmon, our deputy director, to, for a few words.
1: Hey, Mike. Just uh, on behalf of the Army World College, Army Heritage Education Center, and all of us here, thanks for taking the time to do this. Sure, it was um, just a small token of oh, our appreciation. Thanks, sir. Thank you. Uh, but you know, I'll take that back when we're done. Yeah, right, right, right. Uh, this is a display one. <laughs> but the, the other piece is now that the book's done, right? now that you finally got this lecture complete, it's time for you to get back to work.
0: <laughs> Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA is an integral part of the U.S. Army War College and maintains the knowledge repositories that support scholarship and research about the U.S. Army and its operating environment. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube to learn more about past and upcoming events.